0: Hi, I'm Robert W. Schneider and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on chapter 25, The Wiz. And with us today is the co-author of that chapter, Jarrell L. Henderson. Uh, Mr. Henderson is a director and puppeteer. Recent directing credits include at the Griffin Theater, Um, there's a Jeff Award nomination for Direction and Best Play for his work at the Griffin, Walnut Street Theater, the Goodman Theater, Steppenwolf Theater, and Looking Glass Theater. He received an MFA in directing from Northwestern University, is a member of the Lincoln Center Director's Lab back in 2012, an Artistic Associate of Black Lives, Black Words, and a Henson Foundation-sponsored participant at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center National Puppetry Conference back in 2020. Jarrell, I am so happy that you're here with us today to talk about The Wiz. So, my first question for you is, what makes The Wiz a key musical? So, <clears throat> The Wiz, I, I, you know, we, we
1: argue, um, and the chapter is a key musical because of the, again, it's like, what's the long term, you know, if, if every show, every, every show that makes it to Broadway, because that's not an easy thing to do. Um, every play that moves it to Broadway is like putting a stone in a pond. And we know the lasting effect it has based on the ripples, the ripples out, right? And so when you look at a musical like The Wiz, the ripple effect is lasting, There are like large scale ripples, which, you know, we'll get into in terms of like major pop cultural influences. And then there are minor ripples, um, which is to say like me, which, and this is a true statement. The reason why I do theater today is because of the whiz. And I know that I'm not the only performer, um, who feels that way, particularly, but not limited to the African-American community. Um, I understand the connection. I, under, I, have, I have some understanding of what it means because of how it has impacted me and how I have seen it impact other people along my journey in theater, um, as well as in film, understanding the history of the film. You don't have the film without the original show and the aftershocks of the film, which are global. Um, and some might even argue international. Um, And so that's what makes it. It's like people are still talking about it. Um, A few years ago, there was a TV live production of The Wiz. It finds its way into uh, a popular discussion, Questlove Supreme, um, which is my favorite podcast, Questlove's podcast, in which there's the, you know, Stephanie Mills episode in which they get to speak about that process in detail. You have the documentaries on Jeffrey Holder, in which, you know, he speaks about his experience as the costume designer and then director. I mean, it's it's lasting, it's lasting. Um, and The Wiz especially because in, in my journey, there have been a lot of, you know, I am African-American, a <laughs> so-called minority in America. And there are, you know, it it wasn't a popular musical at first, um, with the critics who were predominantly white American, it was not a popular film, um, with the critics, predominantly white critics. I have run into a lot of resistance with people who just don't get it, but the Wiz is still here. It's still strong. It still has a major following and, um... It has a lot to do with the African-American community that's like, no, nah, this is ours. And, and if no one else is gonna champion this show, we are, because the show is inherently American coming from the L. Frank Baum novel, The Wonderful Witch Revolves, 1900. And it is inherently African-American with influences from Motown, which is the most obvious, but also really deep and strong blues and soul Um, blues and soul influences. I remember uh, years ago, this is before I moved to Chicago, someone pointed out that like, they're like, oh yeah, The Wiz is a ballad musical. I'm like, what do you mean? (laughs) Most of the songs are ballads. There's not a lot of up-tempo songs in The Wiz. I'm like, oh, you're kind of right. You know, the the intro to uh, What Would I Do If I Could Feel? (laughs) (laughs) Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. that's a blues riff man um you know the gospel of no bad news and i love the distinction between the broadway musical no bad news both sung by the great the great the great mabel king um the original broadway cast which is gospel boom 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 boom, 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 boom. Um, very churchy, and then the film version, which is like New Orleans jazz, bum 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 bum. You know, these are the. I mean, this is what my culture, uh, coming from the African American community, this is what we brought to the American table. So within the Wiz, we really get an opportunity to live within our our American schizophrenic wholeness, you know what I mean? It is one of the things that helps it come together. Um, And so that's like, that's why it's a key musical. It changed the way Broadway operated. It changed the way we looked at African-American shows. It's one of the first musicals, if not the first, um, which lives in a wholly African-American context, but is still fantastical so that you don't necessarily have to be African-American to to play these parts um but unlike you know i guess more the fantastical ones from the past you look at oh house of flowers um the point hmm what do you say the point isn't necessarily to escape the issues of what it means to be african-american it's to just deal with them in a different context Mm -hmm. you know so it's a bit more savvy it's a bit more playful.
0: Yeah. Let's go back to the early nineteen seventies, um, right before the Wiz is about to come out. Can you tell us a little bit about the African American community's representation on Broadway in that period so we have a understanding of what the Wiz was doing at that time? So we have compared into yeah. that context. Yeah.
1: The 1970s is a really exciting era in American musical theater when it comes to African American musical theater because it's it's when we were in vogue again. Um, African American culture goes in and out of vogue in the larger scale of American popular culture, and so it's not that we stopped performing on Broadway. There was, of course, Hallelujah, Baby in the 60s and House of Flowers in the 50s, um, but by the time you get to the nineteen seventies, well, post hair, and hair does a lot to change the landscape. And I know that you, you talk about that uh, um, because it introduces rock into the Broadway vernacular. Um, you know, the sh- Broadway show tool vernacular. So you you start out with musicals like, and I forget which came first. Um, right now, but you have like Pearly. You know what I mean? Which I think is seventy, um, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> Um, you have plays right. like Pearly, which is the, you know, the Ozzy Davis, um, reta- the retelling of Ozzie Davis is Pearly Victorious to, to musical theater, which takes a look at Jim Crow segregation and the South. Um, you also have a year or so later, uh, the musical Raisin, which is the musical version of A Raisin in the Sun, um, which is about, you know, this African-American family on the South side of Chicago in the 1950s who you know, want a better life. And one person sees that, uh, sees their way out as, you know, to be economically driven, the son and then the mother it's, it's still economic, but it's based in property and land. We got to get a house. And that becomes the main conflict of that play. So you do have stories, um, that are beginning to pop up that predominantly feature African-American cat characters. The point is that they're African American characters? Again, it, it's again like that's the like House of Flowers or Carmen Jones. It could be about anybody. It doesn't really matter that they're Black. No. And Pearly and in Raisin, it matters that they're Black. <laughs> um, so this is the world that we, we find ourselves entering into in the beginning of the 1970s. And so, wait, before I keep going, did that answer your question?
0: it did yes because what what is the world that the whiz is about to enter into and yeah and what you you had said which is that the african-american experience is back in vogue at this time so that helps bring bring yeah a safer space for the whiz i don't know and a more accessible space for the whiz it means that your chances of getting work produced go up
1: okay you know, there, there's never a guarantee, but pe- people are open. You know, there, there are a lot of times in American history where just, people just, just aren't open. You know, black shows don't sell. You know, all the things that you hear, all the same tired excuses that you hear about why people just can't do the damn thing that
0: we're all supposed to be doing and we say we want to do. <laughs> don't get me started. So unfortunately, the, the, the idea that, quote unquote, black shows don't sell this is not just a recent concept that we're hearing from so many white theater producers. We've heard this yep. now f- for decades and decades earlier, just coming out of the mouths centuries. of different people. Centuries. This point, coming at out of this the, point, a century. <laughs> coming out of the mouths of different people. Okay. yep. So l- now let's go to the actual production of The Wiz. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the show or some of the original cast members um, who, yeah. who many are still with us today and still iconically working. Uh, but I leave That's that right. to you. Um, so here's what I know. Um, so the, whiz, the
1: idea of the Whiz is often credited to Ken Harper, who's the producer, the late great Ken Harper, who's a DJ in New York. And uh, Charlie Smalls, who uh, the late great Charlie Smalls, who uh, is a lyricist, and so they want to do a retelling of L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. So The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, for those who may not know, because I don't want to assume that everyone does know, is a children's novel. And that's an important distinction um, because a lot of children's books have very simplistic language. Um, It's maybe 20 pages, maybe, you know what I mean? But The Wizard of Oz, you know, even though the chapters are shorter, has like 20 some chapters to it. So it's a children's novel, and because it was written in 1900, the language that's used um, it's quite antiquated, and there's some really big words um, that you're not used to seeing in the, you know, well, when I was a child in the second half of the 20th century going into the 21st. Um, so L. Frank Baum writes this American fairy tale, and that's a big deal. Because fairy tales at that point in the 1900s are thought of as old world Hans Christian Andersen, Aesop, so on. So he writes this in 1900, it becomes a hit. He produces a play, he produces some short films. Of course, um, at least in American popular culture, we're aware of the 1939 film starring Judy Garland and Ray Balger and Bert Lahr, uh, you know, which, which you know, on the MGM and it's black and white at the beginning and then color and it's very dynamic. So this story has been living in American popular culture for about 70 some years by the time the folks who write The Wiz come along, but they're gonna do something different. They're gonna put it in a specifically African-American context. William F. Brown, who was not (laughs) African-American, is brought in to write the book of the musical and the musical is written in slang, slang that was popular in the 1970s. Um, The original director who was hired is Gilbert Moses, who, if you have not heard his name, um, go ahead and do a Google search. I mean, uh, all these folks were groundbreaking personalities. Gilbert Moses is brought on as director. Uh, George Faison is brought on as choreographer. And Jeffrey Holder, who was originally slated to be a director, is brought on to be the costume designer. So almost from the beginning, you kind of have this it's kind of like a, a patchwork or a collage of personalities coming together, seeking to remake or revisit something that has always been a part of American culture. Um, it's really, I mean, you you might call it the first sample musical. <laughs> you know, if you look at how sampling would work in rap later where you're just like, I'm gonna take a little bit of this, I'm gonna take a little bit of that, and I'm gonna put my own spin on it and create something new, right? That's the idea of what you're working with, with the Wiz. Um, I do not know how, but I know that Gilbert Moses is eventually replaced by the late, great Jeffrey Volder, who uh, is not only the costume designer, but goes on to become the director. George Faison stays on as the choreographer. Um, there is a young girl <laughs> by the name of Stephanie Mills who uh, has won, by this point, she had won Apollo Amateur Hour. She won the Apollo Amateur Hours, uh, uh, Amateur Night. Excuse me, six weeks in a row. <laughs> she's an amazing voice. She go, she finds herself into the brova community through Maggie Flynn. So she's in the original production of Maggie Flynn in the chorus. I love, I love the fact that I was like, wow, I never knew that. Listen, the choral work, and you're like, well, Stephanie knows this somewhere in there. Um, and so she's brought on as Dorothy. Um, I forget the name of the original Scarecrow. I think it was Stu Gillum, but eventually uh, Hit and Battle, who is in his mid to late teens as born as the Scarecrow. Um, the great Tiger Haynes, who by that point was a Broadway vet. Uh, he's in New Faces of, I forget, it's 52 or 56. I cannot remember. One is the Earth, one of the other ones is the Tiger Haynes, but I can't remember because um, I only know these shows by the African-American people in them. Um, and... Ted Ross, the great Ted Ross, who was in Raisin, is brought on to play the role of the Cowardly Lion. Uh, and the play goes into rehearsal and it is in tryouts and it has a really troubled time. You know, I think it's in DC and, and it makes its way to New York. It does not do, it sells okay, but it doesn't do well critically. And so the production kind of has to go from there, right? The, I know that on opening night, a uh, closing notice was posted um, at the theater on opening night because they did not see the show. The reception that everyone expected to receive didn't necessarily happen. And so then you have people who start to get nervous
0: and and very quickly the reception. Do you mean an audience reception or a critical reception, or is it both?
1: Thank you for clarifying that. I really mean a critical reception. Mm-hmm. The critics were really really um, indifferent um, when you go back and read it. And later, um, some admitted that they just they couldn't connect to it. I mean, you have one critic who's like, "There's obvious, you know, he was it was clear to him because it was a white man. It was clear to him that there was something special happening, but he couldn't find his way into it." But one of the reasons why he couldn't find his way into it is because he never had to, uh, you know. I, I imagine it was the first time a show was performed where he wasn't the center of what everybody was hoping, and so you had a lot of folks saying that there's nothing there, or there's not a lot there, and and really you begin to see a connection in some of the feedback that you had from older African American musicals. The singing and the dancing is fantastic; the story is not, and that is a that is a label. It's an indifferent and racist label that goes back to the days of Williams and Walker in the late 1800s, going into the early 1900s, to shuffle along in 2016. Because that's the, the 2016 shuffle along, that was the New York Times review. The singing and the dancing was good, and the book wasn't. And it was like, wow, I don't even think this person realizes that they're like stepping into like a classic racist misstep. But that's the way it is. And those are the folks who were hired to write those pieces. And so then the show becomes in danger.
0: Sorry, I was making a note. I apologize. Oh no. no <laughs> I'm taking no, I'm worries. taking I'm taking notes I see. during this, which, I, is, I see which is great. So then how do you how did they take this particular show and make it the hit that it became? If you're if the power of that moment was the critics and this this was a time I think we can re, I don't know if, if this still happens today we we're like the New York Times pretty much could make or break a show I don't know if that happens so much today in the 21st century. Um, how do they overcome this is really my question. So this is part of what makes the way
1: special. And this is part of what makes it. It's not what makes it memorable. But it's what sets it up to be memorable, if that makes sense. Because there are a lot of shows that had similar issues in terms of getting started. But The Wiz is a different scenario because it is specifically rooted in the African-American experience. So basically, um, the producers didn't give up on it. Hi, producers. There's a message. (laughs) If a show doesn't immediately do well, invest in it more. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> you, you believed in it at some point.
1: You believed in this enough <laughs> to put in all this money. and then, But, you know, so the producers, the, the uh, 20th century Fox didn't give up on it. And so instead of abandoning the show, they actually invested more in it. And so with this money, you know, Black people begin to do what Black people have always done when the work that we're producing is under assault by the so-called larger majority, you know, uh, predominantly white institution that is American theater, word of mouth, 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 go to the churches, go to the lodges, go to the, you know, go to the beauty stores, go to the barbershops. We will get the word out and not, because not only is there something special happening, but there's something special happening that's about to go down because of systemic racism. And so because 20th Century Fox, you know, uh, put more money and resources behind it, um, the uh, Ken Harper, the other folks who were working on it, I mean, even, and this is in our chapter, um, even, you know, Stephanie Mills' mom, you know, they went to a big church in Brooklyn and Cornerstone Baptist, uh, Baptist church. And you know her, her mom, she was like, I saw my mom on the phone, making calls, letting the church folk know, listen, we gotta show up in support because there is something really special happening. And the larger white majority you know, system is about to take it down. And so that's when you begin to see a difference in turnout. You begin to see a difference in who is buying tickets. And African-Americans really came in and championed that once that happened, the larger majority could catch on. And here's what makes the whiz. Here's, here's the first thing that I would argue. You know, everything else is, is um, set up. It's, it's, it's prelude. you know, Everything else is set up. But the moment in which 20th Century Fox makes the choice to infuse more resources, along with the word of mouth, you have a commercial that's produced. A, t- a Broadway television. commercial. A te- oh, thank you. Yes, a television commercial that was produced. And I'm not sure how often that had been done in the past. Um, and so now the image, and you also have this really great song, Ease On Down the Road. You know, the song, it's catchy and it's fun. And we all remember Follow the Yellow Brick Road from The Wizard of Oz. And this is the black version of that. And so now you have, the jeffrey holder's beautiful costumes i mean come on afrofuturism man afrofuturism in the mid 1970s and it is fantastic it is out of this world literally um or maybe not literally but you know what i mean because this commercial is produced, you now have something different, right? You now have a different kind of energy. So now suburban families can be brought in. Now families that uh, you know maybe didn't go to church, but live in predominantly African-American communities can see this image of Black people in the Wizard of Oz and be enchanted by it. Other folks who may not be in the African-American community can see this image of Black people in the Wizard of Oz and be like, wait, what is this? This looks kind of cool. And so then you start to have audiences that are really drawn through curiosity and Amer- the American ingenuity that was the Wizard of Oz becoming the Wiz, right? Again, that patchwork, that collage. One of the things that we're, we're, we're really, really, I, I would argue that we, as Americans, we're really obsessed with identity because it's one of the things that we're all wrestling with, the story of how we came here, whether it be we were brought here, you know, as chattel, or you came here because your family was dying of a, of a famine, you know, and then what does it mean once you're here in that old world versus the new world, and so the things that we come up with as Americans is something that we can all share, the original gods as part of that, so then the Wiz could build on that. You have a new entity of american entertainment that is both african-american but not rooted in african-american oppression like pearly like raisin like hallelujah baby uh you also had in the early 70s ain't supposed to die a natural death by melvin van peoples which took a look at the inner city right because you know both Raisin and Pearlie deal with uh, predominantly uh, middle-class values. What does it mean to have, you know, these things that we don't have? we ain't supposed to die in that for death. was like, this is what life is like now. So you begin to have this swirling of culture that culminates in an original piece of Americana. There's an image, one of my favorite images, if I can find it, I'll send it to you, of Margaret Hamilton. Greeting Margaret Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West in the 1939 film, is greeting Mabel King, who was the Wicked Witch of the West in *The Wiz*, and it's one of my absolute favorite photos because both Margaret Hamilton and Mabel King look—it's—they're looking into each other's eyes. Mabel King is in her you know eveline costume, and they're both ecstatically happy because they understand that connection. You look at when The Wiz went on to win seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical. And Ray Balger is the one, uh, Ray Balger who played the scarecrow in the 1939 film is the one who presents the award for directing to Jeffrey Halder. And as they come up, you know, they're playing ease on down the road. Ray Balger can't hear music and not dance. <laughs> and so he begins to do his scarecrow dance. Jeffrey Halder comes up and does his version of the scarecrow dance and they dance together. We have a new version of Americana. We have been able to join and connect through myth rooted in African-American music and culture. That had never been done that way before. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon
0: University. Visit gcu.edu. And now let's look at the movie version of The Wiz, which is also very seminal. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the movie and how it differs from the stage show and on a a personal note do you prefer the stage version or do you prefer the movie version that'll be the last part that'll be the last (laughs) part of this question and listen the the some people are like i don't pick favorites or i find them both artistically (laughs) equal great but let's talk tell me about the movie version first and then we'll talk about your opinion on it. yeah gotcha okay so the
1: film version which uh comes is uh through motown uh is uh, generally holds on to like the music and the general idea of the musical, because the musical The Wiz is the story of of the L. Frank Baum story, but transitions into an African American African-American vernacular, really, and, because the context more or less remains the same. She's a little girl who lives on a farm. She's taken by a tornado to this magic land. She has all these adventures, and then she goes back home. That's the original story, and that's the whiz. So a lot of people, myself included, who saw the film first were a little taken aback the first time we experienced the musical because the film was so ingrained inside of mm. us in terms of what The Wiz was when we found out that it was the other way it was like oh wow it was kind of a culture shock so The Wiz and this you know I, I don't know why uh, I don't know why they did the change that they did but The Wiz directed by 1978 directed by Sidney LeMay um, and the script by Joel Schumacher
0: if uh,
1: any Batman and Robin suit.
0: fans out there, you can you can see <laughs> yeah, Mr. Exactly. Schumacher's work on display. Yes.
1: He put nipples on the scarecrow. That's his thing. No, just, no, oh, that's the that, thing about I, no, I the that nipples was... on the
0: bat suit and all that yes. nonsense. Um, and, and, well, and we yeah. should <laughs> also remind people at this time. And and I'm so curious about this, but C- Sidney LeMay was also probably one of the greatest drama directors of cinema. Yep. So things like Absolutely. Network things like murder on the orient express uh oh, a dog day afternoon dog day afternoon so it's interesting that <laughs> they go to him and they go do you want to do a musical but yeah, that's not yeah. that's neither here nor there i'm sorry so so i apologize uh no what, no, no. What, what does the movie do differently than the stage version you say the stage version opens up and she's a farm girl in kansas how does this movie version open up or, or so where is she in the, the movie... beginning of the movie yeah
1: yeah, here's what the film does that I think is really, really, really cool that the the musical does not do. It puts it in a more urban context because the context of the musical, like the original story, is very rural. You know, it takes place in Farmland, whereas the, as the film takes place in Harlem. Uh, the Dorothy character is not a little girl who's lost. She's a young adult who's trying to find her way. She's in her mid-20s, which... It's actually not a bad place to put a character who doesn't know where they want to go. Um, because when you're, when you're in your, at least with my experience in my early 20s, I was still figuring out life. It's like I, you know, at 40, I look back at myself in my 20s and I'm like, how in the world did I think I was an adult? <laughs> um, how did my, you know, how did my siblings have children in their 20s? I <laughs> like, because you're so, you're still so young. So it puts it in an urban context, we're in Harlem. But Oz, as opposed to being a fantastical land, is a specifically urban fantastical land. So in the land of Oz, the first witch that she meets is a numbers runner. <laughs> you know, the yellow brick road is a literal physical road, but it's also taxis which will never stop for you. Hello. Hello. No cab will stop for them in that film. Um you know, the Tin Man, you know, the Scarecrow is found in a vacant lot. I could relate to that in the area that I grew up in, in South Philadelphia, because I grew up in a very nakedly urban inner city context, right? I grew up in what my, my cousin told me when I was 12, that we lived in a ghetto. I, I was like, Really? I've heard so many horrible things about ghettos. We live in a ghetto. like, well, that's what it means with a very small, enclosed—you know, like our our world is essentially like five blocks, consisting almost exclusively of black people. You know, who are working poor. That's what that means, bro. <laughs> Um, so it's, an, you know, the Scarecrow's in a, a vacant lot. The Tin Man is in a, a vacant, um, abandoned amusement park. And the lion is found as, you know, he has hidden inside of one of the lions in front of a museum. So these are things that if you live in a city like Philadelphia, where I grew up, like New York, and that, you know, you can relate to, to some extent. So that's probably the biggest difference between the film and the, uh musical oh and also the the change of the scarecrow song and the musical the scarecrow sings a song called i was born on the day before yesterday written by charlie smalls really lovely laid-back gospel tune um i like that song a lot smooth and hitting battles vocals are just i mean come on man you're just so smooth um whereas in the film it's an up-tempo number uh uh funk funk disco number called you can't win Um, which was written specifically for Michael Jackson, the great, late, great Michael Jackson, who played the scarecrow in the film. Um, And Michael, I mean, it's just, for lack of a better term, um, off the wall. Pun absolutely intended. You know what I mean? I mean, I think at the end of the hit, You Can't Win, he does a blues riff. And every time I watch it, I'm like, see, that's Michael Jackson before he went totally pop. (laughs) You can't get out of the game, no, no, no. I mean, rooted in African-American blues music. So though, you know, and of course, Quincy Jones does the soundtrack, which becomes nominated for an Academy Award. He builds on um, the music in the show and expands it. You know what I mean? So the Emerald City number, you know, uh, because in the the musical, it's kind of like this really cool Vogue number. But in the film, it's an extravagant Vogue number. Okay. (laughs) It is epically extravagant. It is intentionally extra, <laughs> and I love it, um, so yeah, it's just grander, it's
0: grander, and more who, besides Michael Jackson, name some other people, please, who were in the cast of this film, and what their casting meant specifically for the African-American audience,
1: okay, well, of course, I know you don't mean this, but Not not speaking for everyone, but just speaking for myself and my own experience, yes. um, the, so, the way the film? Diana Ross is Dorothy, Michael Jackson is the Scarecrow, the great comedian Nipsey Russell, like great comedian, plays the Tin Man and and his performance is is spectacular because he's not not a trained singer the way that Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, and Lena Horne are trained singers. However, he has an exceptional ability to communicate emotion. Um, His version of What Would I Do If I Could Feel is actually my favorite version of that song. Because of his vocals and because of what Quincy Jones did with the accompaniment, listen to it. It's jazz blues. It's jazz blues. And the piano, the way that the piano uh, moves throughout the song, whether it's on melody or where it's playing around the melody, it's really extraordinary. It's a very beautiful song. The great Ted Ross, who won a Tony Award for his performance as The Lion on Broadway, is one of the two uh, original cast members from the Broadway production who make it into the film. The other one, as I mentioned before, is the late, great Mabel King, who plays Eveline, the Wicked Witch of the West, who had the voice of God. Uh, as well as, I mean, it's Hollywood, right? So Richard Fryer is the whiz. unlike Andre De Shields, the great Andre De Shields, who just won his first Tony Award, even though he's been nominated uh, uh, three or four times. Um, the great Andre De Shields plays the Wiz on stage, and you know, I mean, he steals every moment he's on stage. You just can't stop looking at him. <laughs> he seems just so appealing. Uh, and the film was played by Richard Pryor, and the music is cut, so Richard Pryor's is not going to sing. He's just going to act and do comedy. Fair enough. Um, one of the biggest. Uh, one of the biggest amazing things, and this also goes to what makes The Wiz special in terms of why it's significant, um, is because it was a really brilliant piece of casting to cast Dee Bridgewater, the great jazz um, singer, who's still working, still killing it, um, wins a Tony Award for playing Glenda on Broadway. In the film, Glenda is played by Lena Horne. So here's why that's awesome historically, and why it's one of the reasons why I would argue that the Wiz is is positioned as being really really significant in American culture. The fact that Lena Horne is a is a significant part of this film. She is one of the last songs, um, and she kills it. <laughs> she has "If You Believe," which is a song. You know, um, Lena Horne's career begins in you know, the Cotton Club and musical variety shows and cabarets in the uh, 1940s. I want to say late 30s going into 40s, but the, my dates are sketchy, but I know she started at the Cotton Club, um, which means that you're at least in the late 30s, early 40s. <laughs> um, so Lena, but Lena Horn became a cultural icon through the films Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather, which both came out in the early 1940s. Um, She became a icon with the American military in terms of becoming a pinup girl, which she was always very proud of. She was very happy that she was able to give um, soldiers, something to what, what they said in that time fight for. We don't believe that now, but they believe that then. And she was happy to to be that version because the black guys couldn't put Betty Grable. You know, there's a very iconic picture of Betty Grable looking from behind her shoulder. You know, with her with her booty showing that the white guys would put up in their lockers, and this is what we're fighting for. But black guys couldn't put her up because she was white. So Lena Horn became a pinup girl that they could put in their lockers and have something that they have something to remind them of home and what was special. You know, um, so she was already a known entity. So to have Lena Horn in the film version of The Wiz connects the legacy of Black musicals. It connects this Black musical from 1978 to the early era of Black musicals, where you had folks like Fats Waller, Bilbo, Jingles Robinson, the Nicholas Brothers when they were young. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the Nicholas Brothers were still working at that time, but they weren't doing splits down staircases anymore. You know, well, Harold was <laughs> <laughs> Harold, Harold. was in the tap dance kid of the eighties doing splits. But that's another that's another conversation for another time. But still, you get my point. It anchors it, and if you understand her trajectory as a performer, you can begin to connect the dots between how Black musicals operated in the 30s and 40s and how Black uh, musicals had evolved and how African-American musicals had not evolved. It's, It's really quite ingenious and historically delicious that she's in that film, that she has that final moment and that her vocals are so extraordinary.
0: So, Jarrell, let's imagine that someone comes to you and says, I've got a ton of money. We want you to direct The Wiz, but Mm -hmm. we're going to give you an option. You can either do the original version or you can adapt the screenplay for the stage. What would be your preference?
1: I think it's like The Wiz Live a few years ago. It has to be a little bit of both. Nothing about The Wiz is either or it's and <laughs> great it's and so there's no either or with the wiz that's what makes it special
0: do you have a preference though as either as an audience member or as an artist on which one you find more effective if, if a young person comes to you and says i have no interest i have never seen the wiz i don't know what it is do you say go see the show go see the movie I, I well, or go see both man. go see both
1: i'd say go see both but no i i so the the film has a deeper attachment to me because i was familiar with that before i was familiar with the show so speaking from a place of emotion and nostalgia it has to be the film because the film is what made me want to do theater you know diana yep. ross and michael jackson were in an all okay so my, <laughs> The The Wizard of Oz was the first non-child book I read when I was in third or fourth grade. Oh, wow. And I read it because I was obsessed with the 1939 MGM film. And when I say obsessed, I mean, I watched it and then I rewound it because this was in the days of VHS and then I watched it again and then I rewound it and then I watched it again and then I rewound it and I watched it again until my father banned it (laughs) because he couldn't stand to hear that anymore. My... Um, sister's girlfriend at the time, my sister's wife, who was his girlfriend at the time, they were in high school when I was a small child, still, um, laughs when she sees me because she remembers that she came over one day and The Wizard of Oz was on and I told her that I knew it word for word and she thought that I was being hyperbolic and then she watched me watch the film and I knew it word for word and she was blown away. She was like, oh my God. So, um... And so, the, so when, the, when I saw The Wiz for the first time, again, it became a childhood obsession of mine because it was, you know, um, I was born in the, ni- the early 1980s. So as I'm coming into awareness of the world, Michael Jackson just hit with Thriller. So Thriller, is, is in, you know it's, it's in the, the gumbo of my childhood. It's a large seasoning in the gumbo of my childhood. So the fact that Michael Jackson, who was like the biggest star in the world and black and young and beautiful, um, was in this black version of The Wizard of Oz, I mean, it really didn't get any better than that. But what I will say, so, so I would have to say the film in terms of just like, that's what got me addicted. Then I learned about the play. But in terms of the musical, The musical is special because the musical features opportunities on stage, Hmm, how do I say this? What makes The Wiz special isn't the cool things that they're able to do in the film. It's the amazing performances performers are able to give on stage. The Wiz reminds me very much of Vaudeville. It reminds me of Vaudeville, you know what I mean? You're supposed to hold for laughs. You're supposed to get laughs. You know, after the lion sings his song, you know, the lion sings Me No Lion, which is this great bombastic number, you know, and then when the audience is applauding, he begins to milk them for applause. That's in the, that's in the script. He begins to, you know, spin his tail, you know, strut down the stage, do turns, do the moonwalk if he wants to, so that people applaud as long as possible for him. That's fun. You know, when you have So You Wanted to Meet the Wizard, I mean, The Wizard's two songs, So You Wanted to Meet the Wizard, which is just this, uh, it's this larger than life, you know, feeling of this giant personality who walks on stage and commands everything. In the film, the character becomes a bit broken down once they discover that he's a humbug, that he doesn't actually say what he means or means what he says. In the musical he never loses his confidence Um, and his final con his final gift is y'all got it which is like if you're gonna go out you're gonna go out in style that is an incredible song I remember listening to y'all got it in high school on my cd (laughs) walkman you know on the bus coming home and just listening to that song on repeat because the energy that Andre the Shields and the band is putting out. I mean, it's like it's, it, 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 it. It remind. It, it really does remind me of how I felt once. I'll never forget. I was listening to. Um, I was washing the dishes in my dad's house as a teenager, and I, was, you know, had a, like a. I had like a, a Motown Greatest Hits or something, um, and the Temptations "Ain't Too Proud to Beg" came on. <laughs> I know you want to leave me, and it stopped me, and I turned around and looked at the radio, and then I walked over to the radio, and I put my hand in front of the speakers and just felt the energy coming out of that song, and then Ain't No Mountain High Enough with Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye came on, and it was the same thing, no, no, baby, no wind, no rain, For winter's cold. I mean, there was energy pumping out. And that's how I felt when I listened to Y'all Got It. Which is why later in life, when I learned that Motown was a big influence, a lot of it made sense. Like that's the beauty of the show. You can every role in the stage version of The Wiz is a showstopper. You can walk away. I, I saw a tour when I was in high school that came to the Tower Theater in West Philly, (laughs) Um, when I was in high school and the guy who played the, I don't remember the actor's name, but he played uh, uh, the doorman at the Emerald City, stole the show. He had like two moments, both couldn't have been more than five minutes. And it's now 20 plus years later and I still remember his performance because it was hilarious. He was so Regime from Living Single, you know, uh, 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 you know, Hillary Banks from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He was so snooty and so rude, you know. But as soon as they had something he was interested in, he became, he became a sycophant and it switched on a dime. And it was hilarious. So, you know, there's that's the difference between, that's what the film can't do. You know, every number can't be a showstopper in the film. And The Wiz, I mean, it's just so enjoyable.
0: Now, the one thing that the film did do is foster a relationship between Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson, um, which I I was totally unaware of until I I read um, your paragraph on this. Can you tell us a little bit about how The Wiz, the movie, changed entertainment as we know it? So here's the deal. And here's why, like, you don't have the film without the musical. So if you're
1: going to talk about the legacy of the the script, the theatrical script, you have to talk about the fact that it gave birth to this film, where even though it wasn't a commercial success, it really did change world culture. Quincy Jones had met Michael Jackson before when he was a child, because Michael Jackson was a child performing with Motown. We all know this. He was a member of the Jackson Five. He was the lead singer of the Jackson 5. He wasn't just a singer. Um, but he doesn't get to know him until the film version of The Wiz. Quinty, I just rewatched the interview earlier today. I think it's the one he was being interviewed for the documentary they did about him a few years ago, um, which if you haven't seen it, I mean, I mean, take a couple hours of your life. And just relive American pop culture through the career of Quincy Jones, um, Billie Holiday to Sinatra to Michael Jackson to you know Prince. I mean, come on. Um, but anyway, so Michael Jackson goes to him. Michael's now a young man; he's of nineteen or twenty, and he is asking Quincy Jones if he can help him find a producer for his you know first solo album because at this point he's still touring with his brothers. And Quincy's like, uh, I don't talk about producing your show. Let's you don't have a song in the show yet because I guess they had already cut. I was born on the day before yesterday, so they get you can't win, which, if I'm not mistaken, is written by Ashford and Simpson. Um, solid as a rock. <laughs> so he records you can't win, and there's some interaction that happens where Quincy Jones decides that he wants to work with Michael Jackson to help him find his voice. So. Of course, as we now know, that collaboration spawns off the wall, Thriller and Bad. Thriller, if it is not the, is absolutely, I believe it's the highest grossing album in like American music history. Bad, if I'm not mistaken, is still the second. And if I'm not mistaken, off the wall, still the third, that may have changed, but at a time it was like, (laughs) Thriller, Bad, off the wall. You know, in terms of music sold. So this relationship that literally launched Michael Jackson's career into the stratosphere would not have happened, at least it wouldn't have happened the way that it did happen if it weren't for the film The Wiz, if it weren't for the musical The Wiz, which gave birth to the film. And so this is how American culture gives birth to American culture.
0: And in our last few minutes together, um, I'm so curious, The Wiz won the Tony Award for for Best Musical. It's only been revived once on Broadway, and I think that was in the early 80s with Stephanie Mills reprising her role as Dorothy. Is there a reason why we have not seen a major commercial revival of this musical, which is so beloved, uh, and is a Tony Award winner for Best Musical?
1: Yeah, that's a good thing. A um, uh, quick, quick side note though, because we can't I, we can't move forward without talking a little bit about Stephanie Mills. Oh, please. and please. Her, her career post the Wiz. So she was a recording artist before the Wiz came, but the Wiz is what really launched her into the national uh, spotlight. She becomes connected with Motown. Uh, after leaving Motown, she begins to record uh, music uh, I Never Knew Love Like This Before, which was featured in Pose, uh, Put Your Body in It. I mean, these are hits. You know, we, we may not know these songs now, but, like, this was part of what was driving pop culture, especially in the African-American community in the late 1970s going into the 1980s. In the late mid to late 1980s, Charlie Smalls and Ken Harper passed away, and she wants to do a tribute. She had done the revival, and she's, I mean, she's, Synonymous with the show because she played Dorothy, uh, so she records a pop version of the song "Home," which I mean just goes on and breaks all kinds of records, and she becomes you know like Grammys and and all these wonderful things, and so. Stephanie Mills, through her relationship with The Wiz and her immense talent, and I mean, I mean, I showed you the video of her live at the Apollo singing "Home," and it's 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 her. You have to watch it for her vocals, and then you have to watch it for the audience's response to her vocals. Right? She's one of the few singers that I would liken to Mahalia Jackson. When I, when, if you want to really understand Mahalia Mahalia Jackson's effect. Don't just listen to her vocals, which are enough. (laughs) Go back and watch video of the audience watching her. That's how you know how bad she was. And it's similar with Stephanie Mills in that moment with the power of that voice. But being one of the the few um, Broadway performers who was able to successfully make a cross from musical theater to pop to be really successful it doesn't happen that often in American culture and it happened with her and one of the reasons why it happened was because of that song home which she is now connected with she will be connected with that song for the rest of her life and she doesn't even have to sing the you know the last part you know um there's a, a a line that she was added to the song she did in the late 80s you know I can hear my friends Charlie Smalls and Ken Harper I can hear my friends telling me Stephanie please sing my song and she holds the note forever Now she doesn't even have to sing that part because she goes, I can hear my friends telling me, and then the audience shouted at her, Stephanie, please sing my song. (laughs) Because Home is a song that we now associate with what it means to be Black in America, right? What it means to live through this experience as an African American, trying to find your way through and having the questions that you have and trying to make sense of the journey that you've been on so far. It is linked. Home is a gospel song, even though it's not a gospel song, because of its connection spiritually, emotionally. And that comes, I mean, it comes out of the whiz. Okay. You asked me another question quickly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I, but I,
0: you know, I feel good on ending on that, to be honest with you. I think that, I think that's so inspirational. I really do. I really (laughs) do. My question was, why has there never been a revival of it? But I, I, I I feel like after people listen to this episode, they'll be throwing money at a revival of it. So nice, nicely Uh, done, Jarrell.
1: Point them in my direction. Okay. After they throw the money, just be like, and here's a director.
0: And, and. (laughs) My friends listening, Jarrell is a brilliant director, if you ever get the chance to see any of his work, I would encourage you to do so because it's a very special uh, evening in the theater. And of course, he is a brilliant historian. On top of that, I don't know what he doesn't do. But I don't think we'll ever find out because he's always he's always doing brilliant things. Uh, Jarrell, thank you so much for joining us today. Friends, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about The Wiz, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert W. Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye bye.